0: There's a passage in Acts that um, stood out to me, Acts 17, and um, Acts 17 is probably best known for what transpires in verses 16 through 34, where Paul, the Apostle Paul, spends some time in Athens addressing the Areopagus, um, proclaiming um, God to the the Athenians there, Jesus and the resurrection, and also verses 10 through 15 is where we read of the Those uh, beloved Bereans who have provided for us such wonderful models uh, of Bible study, to searching the scriptures to see whether these things be true. And yet, the verses that I actually want to consider this morning are probably a little obscure to us. When I came across it, I was struck by it. For one, because I realized almost immediately. That I was somewhat unfamiliar with this story these nine verses um, they were not ones that I necessarily would have been able to uh, immediately recount the details of if someone had asked what Acts 17 1 through 9 was about secondly I was struck in the great truth contained in this passage Christ is King. And so my hope this morning is simply twofold. First, I hope we are, um, we leave here more acquainted with these verses than when we came in. Um, And secondly, I hope we are reaffirmed in our commitment to worship God and faithfully serve our King, Jesus. And so with that brief introduction, if you've not done it, um, please turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Acts 17. And we will consider this passage under the title, No King But Christ. And our key words for our worshipers in training are gospel, king, and Caesar. You can add Christ as a fourth one if you want. We will explore these verses under four headings. First, we will see the gospel proclaimed. Second, we will see the gospel received. Thirdly, the gospel rejected. And fourthly, the gospel released. So, first, the gospel proclaimed in verses 1 through 3. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary. For the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, "This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ." Well, this passage begins by stating simply that Paul and uh, Silas—that's the they—they they had departed from Philippi, um, and they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they arrive at Thessalonica. And here there's a synagogue of the Jews where Paul enters and begins reasoning with them from the word of God. And this was Paul's usual way of operation when he came to a new city. Uh, You can see in uh, chapter 13 verses 13 through 15, 14 verse 1 chapter 17 verse 2 here, chapter 18 verse 4, these different accounts of Paul coming to a new city and he immediately goes into the synagogue and begins addressing the Jews. And ultimately what typically would happen is he would be rejected uh, by them and he would turn to the Gentiles. And so here, uh, after a brief stint in jail with um, Silas in Philippi uh, because they had cast out a demon from a young girl, Um, young slave girl they they get out of jail and then they eventually set sail and come to Thessalonica and he comes to the synagogue and begins reasoning with the Jews from the scriptures and uh, I want to point out something that I think is interesting that that Luke the author of Acts uses the word reasoning here I think it's an important word today in our society our culture this world we hear that Christians are loony, senseless, irrational zealots, reason in the secular mind is so far removed and detached from faith that um, we are in their in their eyes, Christianity is nothing but an absurdity, but what we are presented with here with Paul and his interaction with these Jews, is not a bloodthirsty, insane, nonsensical, emotion-manipulating religious nut, but a man confident in the scriptures, using his brain to make rational, reasonable arguments. Indeed, given that according to the book of Proverbs in many places, it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge, reasoning here is quite a fitting word. That Paul would engage in this process. But it is not a mere secular, not a mere human reasoning that he employs. It is not reasoning detached from the foundation of the knowledge of God. He reasoned with them. But in 1 Corinthians, we read something quite significant in this regard in this passage and uh, if you want you can turn there we'll be there for a minute or two um, it sheds a lot of light on our passage here in Acts 17 so first corinthians chapter one paul writes where is the one who is wise verse 20 where is the scribe where is the debater of this age has not god made foolish the wisdom of the world for since And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says God has confounded the wisdom of the world. Jews, they sought signs and Greeks sought wisdom. But what do they get? What is offered to them? Paul says clearly there in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified in the place of Of sinners and what is it then that Paul is doing in Acts 17 he is reasoning with the Jews explaining that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and that this Jesus whom they had crucified whom Paul had proclaimed to them is in fact the very Christ but why is it necessary for Paul to make that explanation to these Jews He says in 1 Corinthians there that a crucified Christ, a crucified Messiah is a stumbling block to Jews. What is that? Why is that? They had the notion that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God would come and bring with him the kingdom of God and bring an end to all earthly kingdoms And he would come to reign with power forever and ever as he crushed the serpent's head and delivered his people from their sins. And so the concept of a crucified Messiah for many, many Jews was not something they could fathom. If you consider even, uh, it's really, in some sense, it might be taking the passage out of context to do that. But if you read Isaiah 49, 7, it says, The Lord says the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And so the thought for these Jews that their prophet, priest, and king could come and be killed and killed on a cross was not something they could fathom. They would have known Deuteronomy twenty-one, twenty-three, which says that cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And for them, their king was not to be cursed. The thought would have sent shudders of disgust through them. Princes and kings would bow before this coming Messiah. How dare we suggest that he could be killed, and killed nonetheless by crucifixion. And so Paul is here explaining to them, no, if you know your Bibles, which would have been the Old Testament, their Bibles, it's clear that the the Christ must suffer, and he must rise from the dead. Even in Isaiah 49, 7, when I read, there is this one who is despised and rejected. But why must the Christ suffer, we ask? Well, Paul's answer is uh, given explicitly in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26, and we won't take the time to read it. I encourage you to do that later, but uh, in summary, he says that Jesus had to die so that God could be the just one who justifies the ungodly. Without the death of Christ, God cannot justify the ungodly. That was the method. Uh, Octavius Winslow, a British pastor in the 19th century, had this to say. Christ's obedience to the law has made it righteous for God to justify the ungodly. His supreme delight and his sole prerogative is now to legally justify without any violence to his government or shadow upon his character, acquit and justify the sinner who believes in Christ. Christ has made it so honorable for God to reveal himself as the God of hope to the guilty and condemned that it is written as with a sunbeam upon the inspired page, it is God that justifies. What a glorious hope then is this. The hope of a righteous and full acquittal from present and eternal condemnation comes through the imputed righteousness of Christ. The sinless one for the sinful ones. And when Paul comes to Thessalonica, this is what he offers to these people. Jews this gospel that says although man has sinned and rebelled against God and deserves nothing but God's just and holy wrath forever God has sent his unique Son into the world the Son of God was incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born and he lived a perfect sinless life underneath the law of God, perfectly fulfilling every single one of its demands. And yet, he lays his life down. A willing sacrifice Romans 3 says a propitiation and appeasement against the wrath of God that is aimed at the sinful people so that people like you and like me could receive forgiveness and grace from God through faith in Christ and be forgiven of our sins we we can be made right with God through this Christ who dies and God's approval of Christ's work as our substitute as our sacrifice and mediator, is evident in his being raised from the dead three days after his death. And after his resurrection, Christ appeared to his disciples and many others. And then he ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning the universe as the great king who has come and sought a people for himself and won them by the blood of his cross. This, my friends, is the gospel that Paul offers to these Jews in Acts 17. And it is the good news that is offered to us today. Which brings us to our second point. The gospel received in verse 4. Before we read it, I want to ask, will you embrace this gospel? Have you received it? Have you appropriated it to your life by faith? If someone in here, if you have not yet believed this good news, will you be like these men and women here in verse 4, which says some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading now, we could spend a lot of time on this verse here, but simply we can say this. In a word, what does this mean? Why is it here for? Well, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus. The gospel is not intended merely for one small, isolated group of people. The gospel is not only for the rich, it's not only for the poor, it's not given merely to the famous or the obscure. The gospel is not for men, it's not for women. It's not for adults, for children only. The gospel is not for the clean and the unclean. The gospel is not for white and for black. The gospel message is for sinners. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or what you haven't done, or what excuse you may have. This message, the good news of reconciliation with God through the person and work of Christ, is for you. The gospel is for you. It's for me. It is for us. And so will we, like these Jews, right, some of them, some of the who? The Jews were persuaded and the devout Greeks and leading women. What a divi- d- diverse group here. Interesting, the this, this specific people that are mentioned. Luke is aiming to say that this gospel is for everyone who will believe. So will we turn from our sins, place our faith in Jesus Christ if we have not done so? If you have not, will you join us along with Paul and Silas and these men and women and countless others along the pilgrim's path? Will you give up your own wisdom, the wisdom of the world, and come learn from the foolishness of God, which is wiser than all that this world has to offer? And for most of us in here, those who have received this gospel, who have trusted ourselves to Christ and embraced this Savior, aren't you glad? Can you say with the psalmist, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry for I am brought low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Think of what you have been delivered from, O Christian. Will you flee to God when persecution comes? You may be asking yourself, that seems like an odd turn. Persecution, why bring that up? Well, that brings us to our third point, the gospel rejected, in verses 5 through 7. As I said, I don't assume that every single person in here this morning is necessarily a Christian. Chances are there are few that have walked through these doors totally unconverted, spiritually dead, and yet perhaps some have been quickened by the grace of God and have embraced this gospel embrace this messiah but others perhaps though you have rejected and spurned the gospel you continue to do so i don't know if there's anyone in here like that i i beg your ear for just a moment will you if you have rejected this gospel are you like these men in verses five through seven While there were some men and women who did, in fact, join with Paul and Silas under this banner of the gospel, others were filled with jealousy. Verse 5, but the Jews, probably Jewish religious leaders here, were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And so they are, these men, have rejected this gospel message. They have sought the lives of Paul and Silas. And yet, they could not find them. It says in verse 6, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So they can't find them, and so they begin further violence, dragging this man, Jason, this companion of Paul's, dragging him and his company before the crowd and before the city authorities. And they make an accusation of them in verse 7. They say that Jason has received these men who have turned the world upside down. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another King Jesus they are aiding and abetting these fugitives they say these men these awful men who have turned the world upside down they have come here also the audacity These men are outraged that Paul and company would come to their city and encroach upon their territory, encroach upon their pride of place. We are the rulers here. What is this message that you speak of, this other king, Jesus? And this man, Jason, has received them and provided refuge for them. He's welcomed these men into his home and he's hidden them from us. But why is that so offensive to them? This charge. There is another king, Jesus, right? Because that's the problem. That's the, sum, that's the way Luke at least summarizes their complaint. What have they done? What crime have they committed? Well, they've, they've committed treason in the eyes of these men. They've said there is another king, Jesus. And now we see. But haven't we heard this before? This this statement. There is another king. This rejection of that statement perhaps. Look with me, if you will, in John chapter 19. John 19, beginning beginning in verse 1, we won't read it, but uh, Jesus is before Pilate standing to be, uh, he's been tried uh, and um, found innocent, and yet the Jews will not uh, cease from their desire to see him punished, and so verse 1, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and then Jesus is mocked, they place a crown of thorns upon his head. They drape a a purple robe across his bloody back. And then Pilate offers him back to the Jews, thinking that he had satisfied their craving. But their bloodthirst is not quenched, not by a long shot. Upon seeing the bloody, humiliated man before them, they cry, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate... Realizing he's in a delicate situation. Tries to pawn this job off on them. He says you do it. But they will not do it themselves. For the law says. Verse 7. How dare they talk about the law. They are committing here the most shameless horrendous act in history. And they have the audacity to speak about the law. And so pitiful Pilate, needing to get out of the mess he's in, thinks, but he's in over his head. He can't find him guilty, but he realizes he can't let him go either. Well, the Jews... Uh, in verse 12, begin to cry out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Since when are they concerned about being Caesar's friend? Caesar? The same Caesar of this oppressive Roman government from, from whom they all longed for deliverance? And so Pilate, faced with the threats of the chanting crowd, No friend of Caesar's will let this man go. Yet he tries to make one last-ditch effort and presents Jesus before the crowd. And in verse 14, he says, Behold your king. They cried out all the more. And you can, if you read the story, you can hear the disgust. You can feel it overwhelm you. Oh, away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate asked, "Shall I crucify your king?" And the chief priest answered, "We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar." And with these wor- and with these words, their king was led to the slaughter. You see, in Acts 17, the men who objected to Paul's allegiance to another king, these men are not trying anything new. They're just repeating the same mantra that the chief priest had said at Jesus' crucifixion. And the men at Jesus' crucifixion weren't doing anything new either. What does the psalmist ponder in Psalm 2? Why, he asks, do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Do you remember even... Perhaps before that in 1 Samuel 8 where the people of Israel begin to ask for a king. They want a king to be like the other nations. And Samuel, grieved about this, goes to the Lord. But God says what? He says, Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. And if we're being real honest, Adam and Eve, what did they do? But reject God as their king. Mankind, ever since the fall into sin in the garden, has raged against God as king. Ultimately, we've sought to make ourselves king. But if I can't be king, I'll settle for another one as long as it's not God. We want to be our own rulers. We want to be our own masters. We despise ultimate authority that is out of our reach and we abuse authority that is within our reach. But you see, the chief priest at Jesus' crucifixion, the man in Acts 17 and anyone who has rejected God is king. They have made a a fatal miscalculation, these men in John 19. They have. Because they were faced, they had a moment. Was their allegiance going to be placed in God, in this man Jesus, or in Caesar? It had to go somewhere. There's no neutrality. They had to go with Caesar or they had to go with Christ. And they fell in line with Caesar. There's a problem. Where is he? Caesar is no longer here. He died. And guess what? He stayed dead. And the one after him died. Too. he stayed dead and the one after him and the one after him and the one after him but what of this other king? Caesar is long gone but what of if, what if Paul's king? the kings of earth may set themselves over and against the Lord and yet Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. You see, the kings of earth may rage and Caesar may blaspheme, but there is only one true king. There is one who has always been, who is, and who will always be, and he is ruling on his throne right now. Our king, King Jesus, do you believe this? Do you believe with Paul and with Silas and with Jason that there is another king besides Caesar? Will you stand in the face of sin and self and death and tyranny and say, we have no king but Christ? The import of this text, this passage for us, should be immediately clear we live in a culture that is growing in its hostility by the day toward our king does one man in an oval office or nine men in robes on a bench dictate what is right and what is wrong what shall and shall not be done Things that have up to this point in our culture, I think, gone largely undetected, without notice. They are bringing with them very potentially difficult and trying times. And so whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to them, they can judge. But let us speak of that which we have seen and heard. We must obey God rather than men. When there is... When the heads butt, right? We're not calling ourselves to anarchy. But when Caesar, this Caesar, tries to take the place of our king, where will your allegiance lie? Will you stand in the face of oncoming persecution? Will you endure whatever manner of hardships are sent your way? Will you entrust yourself to God? I, I pray that you will. I pray that we will. I want to close with our final point, the gospel released. And admittedly, this is probably the, the most poorly entitled section of the sermon. Um, it's an interesting uh, couple of verses here in 8 and 9 it says the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest they let them go so uh, upon uh, the gospel release I I gave it that summary for a reason and I, I hope it'll be clear why in a second upon hearing that these men would dare to serve another king besides Caesar the people and the city officials nearly faint Right? they are overcome and disturbed and yet they, they don't do anything further to them they, they take money from Jason as security likely this is, this is just an attempt um, to uh, force him to get Paul and Silas to, to leave um, when you see them they gotta go um, or else we'll, we'll take more stuff from you, I guess. Um, the release of Jason the Brethren here, while probably not directly, I think it, it serves a, a point, um, at least that I want to make in closing, is that the freedom that comes to us in the gospel transcends the bonds of metal chains. Whether or not Jason and his company are released, whether you and I are ever imprisoned and or released, the gospel is free. The message of the cross cannot be hindered from accomplishing its purposes. Um, If you go to the end of the book of Acts, uh, chapter 28, it ends somewhat abruptly, and some might even think it ends in a kind of dissatisfying manner because Paul's in prison awaiting trial uh, in Rome and then it ends. What happens to Paul and his companions? What, what's the deal? The point of the book and the point of this passage here in Acts 17 and the Bible as a whole is not what happens to Paul or Silas or Jason or anyone else because even if we are in chains... The gospel is not. Paul is fleeing here in Acts 17. He's a fugitive from the law. He awaits execution in Acts 28. And yet, it ends that he is there proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul may be in chains. Paul here may be on the run in Acts 17. But the gospel is not. The gospel message continues to go forth. And so regardless of what the city does with us, regardless of what the magistrates do, the gospel will go forth. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray O oh God that you would through faltering lips, feeble words that you would speak to us that your word would go out as it has and it would it would land upon us with great force as is needed If we are weak, would you heal us and bind us up? If we are proudly strong, would you bring us low? And God, as we face whatever the days ahead may bring, may we say with Paul, Silas, and the others, there is another king. To whom our highest allegiance is due, Jesus. And He is ruling and reigning now, and He will bring us safely into His kingdom to be with Him forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.